0: Hello and welcome to the Governance Forum podcast series, In The Chair. My name is Tom Ward and I manage the Governance Forum at the Institute of Public Administration. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this podcast series. The purpose of the series is to engage with highly experienced and high profile individuals who have held or hold senior positions in public bodies and public benefit entities, including, for example, as chairperson, as chief executive or senior government official, and to explore their experiences, insights and lessons learned from a governance perspective but equally and importantly, to explore the human side of occupying a senior position and the pressures and stresses and perhaps joys that accrue. It's my pleasure to introduce our guest today, Paul Reid. Paul was chief executive of the HSE between May 2019 and December 2022, and was one of the public faces of the COVID pandemic response by the government and the Irish state. Prior to this, Paul held a number of senior positions, including Chief Executive of Fingal County Council as Programme Director in the Reform Area and Chief Operations Officer at the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, and a stint as Head of Organisational Development and Corporate Services at Trocra. Paul began his career at the then Department of Posts and Telegraphs, which then became Aircom eventually, and rose all the way through the ranks to Director of Networks and Operations when he departed in 2010. I know, Paul, at the moment, you're presently chairperson of the Citizens Assembly on drug use as well. So you're very, very welcome to the podcast. We're delighted to have you.
1: Morning, Tom. Nice to talk to you.
0: Paul, we're going to focus a fair bit of our time on the HSE, if that's okay, not only given its significance, but obviously given the relatively recent pandemic uh, experience as well. And it strikes me that the HSE is enormous. It's enormously significant. It's emotive for a lot of people, given the important services it delivers and always under media spotlight as well and scrutiny. I guess I'm reflecting back on late 2018, early 19. What, what is Paul rethinking in terms of applying for the position of chief executive and then ultimately taking up the position of chief executive? executive at the HSE.
1: Yeah well I guess the context was I had spent thirty years of my career in the public service and went into the sorry, in the private sector, I should say thirty years in the private sector, went into the public service in my first role with Deeper. Uh, for just over three years and then with Fingal County Council for five years and I really loved the role in the public service. I love the contrast between that and the private sector. I love the opportunity to make a difference particularly in, in central government but also specifically in Fingal County Council you make a difference to people's lives. So at that stage I was fairly committed to staying in the public service. Mm. I had to make a decision whether I went for another term in Fingal County Council. suppose timing is everything the role came up i didn't apply for it the first time around Uh, it came around the second time around uh, for ceo of the hsc and i guess if you are committed to public service there's no greater more privileged role than to try make people's lives better Mm -hmm. in the health system and so that was one area that attracted me Uh, secondly i guess i had good relationships at government level worked with ministers cabinet uh, cabinet committees uh, good relationships with trade unions, uh, particularly in the health sector, uh, working through pay negotiations over a few years. So I felt I knew the stakeholders, um, didn't know the sector well, uh, but felt uh, I was in a leadership position to make a difference. Okay, great.
0: And if, if between May 19 and maybe early 2020, we can call it normal times for the HSE and in, in inverted commas because it's an incredibly challenging sector and, and a big organization to lead. What for you, or maybe one or two of the key Personal, organizational objectives in those kind of early times at the HSE?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question because we can forget um, what life was like pre-COVID, particularly in the health systems. Mm-hmm. But starting from the period I took up in May 19, there was a new governance arrangement. So the previous directorate had collapsed and government government made a decision to put in place a new board. Uh, and I was very happy with that because you know, having a 20 billion euro budget without a board to hold you to account, mm-hmm. I, I think was really wrong. So that, that was the first kind of context. W- probably two of the three key priorities that we had. Firstly, if you take back the pre- previous year, 2018, the HSE had run over a billion euros over its budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a supplementary budget of over a billion. And one of the major priorities uh, I had brought forward to the board and to the government was we really had to bring that back. That was a very difficult period because that meant stopping recruitment yeah, uh, stopping yeah. procurement on certain items and a really difficult actually eight or nine months uh, where i was under significant pressure yeah. from trade unions to recruit under significant pressure from government uh to put, you know who had certain demands on services uh, and i decided so securing strengthening the budget oversight and governance arrangements and finance was one key priority but secondly key was doing that in a manner that didn't impact on services, you yeah. know, that we could tackle the non-services elements of our expenditure uh, and try strengthening services. So really difficult balance of, you know, strengthening services, uh, but strengthening the accountability for finance within the organization.
0: Okay. And you mentioned yeah, that the board was was brought back into being, so to speak, uh, at the HSE. How did you find that uh, relationship in terms of CEO and chair slash board? and how they grew into their role, so to speak.
1: Yeah, growing into the role was, was really what it was all about. They were coming from all different backgrounds. Mm. Uh, I never been in the health sector like myself. Uh, really strong relationship with the chairperson, uh, Karen Devan, very experienced of health systems in the UK and the NHS. So, you know, he was a great support for me. And I also found the board a great support, a really strong challenge. Uh, uh, for for myself and the executive team as we brought forward monthly meetings. And I guess as they were finding their feet, you know, the board would get very anxious about something every day. They might read it in the newspaper. It might be, you know, a pretty damning report comes out. But we had to work with the board that we stay above the really big priorities that we were setting out to deliver with government. So, yeah, learning learning curve for the board, learning curve for myself. uh, But we had that really good... I guess that sweet spot of the board holding me and the executive team to account, but being there in terms of support.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. And can you you recall when it became clear to you that the COVID pandemic was was, was here, was significant, was going to be significant for for you and for the HSE and, and maybe what your initial thoughts were?
1: Yeah, I can recall it really well because in, I suppose, coming towards about a third week in January, we were... Interest in what was happening in Wuhan, uh, mm-hmm. the emergence of uh, the virus, etc. Nobody knew the extent of what the virus was at that stage. But we actually convened the first meeting of the crisis management team in the HSE in the third week in January. Okay. Yeah. So people have this understandable memory of the public face of it uh, as it comes to March and Patrick's Day and uh, the speech by the Taoiseach. Mm-hmm. Um, but right in the third week in January, I convened the crisis management team. And we sat down and just said, worked out scenarios, uh, if uh, the virus was to emerge in the state here, how are we prepared as a health system? And I suppose really a couple of insights give you a bit of colour to that. You know, we were looking at things like PPE and I assessed what did we spend on the previous year in terms of PPE and Mm -hmm. procurement. Uh, And it was about 20 million euros, which is very significant spend, you know, and we were working out, you know, what would it need to be to protect our health staff, you know, if a pandemic arrived and we knew we'd have to have more masks, more gowns, etc. Uh, And we were working at scenarios and when somebody came back and said, it could be a hundred million, and we're going, (laughs) gee, that's a big number, you know? And someone said, it could be 120 million. And we're going, that's a massive number, you know? Um, The actual spend on PPE in in the first year of the pandemic was over a billion euros, you know? So that puts scale and the unimaginable context you were trying to measure out. Uh, And that pricing was largely firstly a function of volume. Uh, but also trying to access it on the markets, mm-hmm. you know, give you a colour or flavour again. You know, a basic mask that the health service staff would have worn was trading at about uh, but 67 cents on the markets in 2019. Um, once the pandemic started, it was trading internationally at about 11.70 euros. 70. Wow. Yeah, okay. and that's largely because the manufacturing plants in China had, had wound down uh, and just inaccessible on the markets generally. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was the scale we were trying to work through from that January period and I was obviously updating government on a, on a daily, weekly basis uh, and presented into government. Pretty soon after that uh, we presented into government you know, that, you know to set out what would be needed uh, to respond in immediate response to it uh, and it was um, one very key milestone. Where we presented into government uh, the chief medical officer Tony Hill and, and myself were asked to present to the government in terms of what would be needed to scale up for this. Yeah. Uh, and then the following day, the Taoiseach called together all the uh, key leads for all the state agencies in Garda Shikana, uh, IDA, uh, Defence Forces uh, about how the whole state would mobilise. And, and that was for me, I guess, a weight off my shoulders. I felt a lot of individual pressure, yeah, uh, sure. but now I felt. This is the whole state behind us on this one. Mm-hmm.
0: And that that meeting in January and was probably a, yeah a spectrum of scenarios. Which mm-hmm. one actually happened? Was it was it the worst case? Was it somewhere in between?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the worst case scenario we would have modelled out in terms of the number of deaths that okay. would have happened yeah. uh, in Ireland, which was probably about twenty thousand in the first few months. You know, and that drove it wasn't that we just modelled a scenario. That drove very drastic actions if you mm-hmm. think about it, like creating a. A temporary morgue, you know, we knew if our hospital had to cope with that level of deaths uh, in small morgues in each of the year. So, you know, building a temporary morgue, trying to procure refrigerated trucks uh, to transport uh, dead bodies from the hospitals into the temporary morgue uh, and procuring them, Mm. uh, a lease arrangement of procuring. So they were, they weren't just scenarios we modelled, they were plans we put in place.
0: Scenarios leading to? Preparation and, and scenarios and, and that drove yeah. the actions that yeah, we had to yeah. take,
1: you know. Uh, and again, just briefly, I mean, that famous meeting that I say where we had all the state bodies together was key because uh, I presented out that we've about 10,500 beds in the public system. We would need to double our bed capacity uh, to about 21,000. So okay. just double it, right? Uh, which is quite stark. um And, you know, a whole suite of other actions. But I can always recall and live with me uh, forever is the response from the people around the table. It wasn't um, what some people might perceive as a civil service going off in their own level. Everybody at that meeting said, we're all in this, we're committed to it. So Mm -hmm. for example, uh, the commissioner from Garda-Shiaqanah uh, came across to me Drew Harris and he said I'm closing down Temple uh, you can have Temple I'm going to graduate the guards uh, you, you can have Temple as a temporary hospital okay. from next week uh, the chief of staff of the defence forces came across to me and said uh, we're winding down any international services that they have running and you have all of our staff at your service from tomorrow um, and he did mean it I rang him that night I said listen I need some uh, c- people tomorrow cadets at daily to do some testing and tracing. Mm-hmm. We didn't know enough about it. Uh, and a funny moment that I have relayed before was I was in the office the following morning, having spoken to him that night. Uh, Mark Mellett was the chief of staff. And I was in the office about half seven the next morning, and three army trucks arrived up the pathway uh, into <laughs> Dr. Stevens' hospital. I didn't know what was going on. And, uh, you know, there they were, ready for service straight away. So that just you know that was important for me that we had the state yeah, yeah. A
0: sense of collaboration and rolling up the sleeves and
1: I think it was the state uh, <coughs> services uh, government department state services agencies at its best mm. uh, in that period and you know, the public perceived that during that period it quickly gets forgotten about but it was the state performing at its best
0: Okay, yeah. I can ask you, was there a particular moment or moments during the pandemic crisis which you considered the dark, darkest moments, and I, I say that acknowledging that for those with loved, who lost loved ones and who mm-hmm. were very unwell, was there a dark or dark moments in particular where you thought, God, this is, this is a, too much, this is a lot?
1: Very much so, and it does relate to, you know, example that you get what the public had to uh, endure and suffer during all that, but specifically uh, when we lost some health staff to mm-hmm. covid I will never forget that. It'll always stay with me. We always called the members of the family uh, with agreement from somebody in advance and uh, just had a talk about them. And, um, you know, we lost some cleaners. We lost some caterers. We lost some doctors. We lost some nurses. Uh, And talking to those families was the darkest moment for me because the families relayed very strongly that they, you know, they couldn't believe how much their family members wanted to go to work during that period the family members were apprehensive and said oh do you really need to and said no 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 we need to be there we need to be at work Uh, and you know that was a very consistent team actually they said back to me so that was probably from a professional perspective and a personal perspective one of the toughest times in my whole career Mm. Um, and it, it impacted everybody around them you know their colleagues yeah. Okay, yeah, mm.
0: and that's certainly part of the story of your experience of the pandemic crisis. But above and beyond that, and one of the things we try and do with the podcast is to explore the human side of mm. of experience uh, in, in these senior positions. But how was the your stewardship of the HSE, including the pandemic, from the point of view of you personally or your, your family? What was an average day, week like during the pandemic, for example?
1: Yeah, I guess taking a couple of pieces. First of all, the role that I had to play was and it emerged very quickly was spending a lot of time keeping stakeholders on board and understanding where we were at. So a lot of time with the Taoiseach, um, both Taoiseach in their periods, probably every day talking to them. Um, A cabinet committee, which probably took place about twice a week, a lot of preparation for it. Obviously the minister, the department, the board, the board would have met a few times a week in the early stages. Uh, Trade unions, keeping them on board. So a lot of personal time that I had to commit to Uh, So that meant, you know, I had to let my team go and lead. Uh, Mm. So, you know, that was, you know, an important point that they had a mandate to go do, etc. But I guess on a personal level, long hours, you know, every day of the week. My wife, we we live in and Shannon. Mm. Uh, So I spend all my time, obviously, in Dublin. Uh, We were in the office throughout the night on many occasions because we were in negotiations with China and South Korea and other countries around PPE and procurement and trying to bid uh, so there was many nights We, you know I'd be in the office all night and the next day I would have forgot I was in the office mm-hmm. all night you just continued on um, so it was quite exhausting um, we used to watch out for each other you know the team were really good uh, we we knew when we were getting cranky uh, mm-hmm. and we'd pull each other up uh, and that was good uh, and obviously my wife family were great support but it was extremely exhausting um, and it was seven days a week obviously quite rightly but it was seven days, long hours. Um, you didn't always know when you're tired, so again, you did rely on your colleagues to uh, to um, help you.
0: Sure. And mm. do you sleep during a period like that?
1: Yeah. I've always slept well. Uh, <laughs> <the> Freshers' <laughs> job I've had, I sleep well, um, but I don't sleep for long. You know, so you know, I, I would have slept well through it, whether it was one night in the office or you know. But generally, I I, I would have you know you sleep well because you need the energy you mm-hmm. know you need the energy the next day but there were times you know you just knew you were really tired uh you know okay, and in yeah. the early stage of saint patrick's day we were working long and hard up to it and you know then then hearing something about saint patrick's day forgetting it was saint patrick's day yeah, so yeah, we didn't have grades yeah. and all that but it just a very surreal period at start. now it didn't ease up after two or three weeks so the pressure was there throughout the pandemic mm-hmm. uh, in a very different way at okay. different stages Mm.
0: So, if that isn't enough, in May twenty one, HSE is subject to a, a very high profile cyber attack. Mm. Um, tell me how you find out when, and again, your your first thoughts when you when you hear the news.
1: Well, again, if you take context of that period, from January twenty one to May twenty one was the worst period of COVID. We had two thousand two hundred people in hospital sick with COVID. We had about 900 of those very serious ventilation. Yeah. Uh, we had over 200 people in ICU. We had to convert temporary beds into IC- high dependency units, high dependency units into ICU beds. It was a very stark period. Uh, we had some of our staff come and talk at our press conferences and I seen journalists um, practically breaking down, uh, listening to the context of what they were dealing with in the wards, etc. So it was a very stark period um, and the period that I found the hardest. So if you take coming to may 2021 13th of may i can remember the day really well we were actually coming to a much better shape in COVID. and mm. things were really improving in the previous three weeks everything was heading in the right direction we were feeling really upbeat uh, because our staff were getting some level of relief and we had a press conference on the thursday i always remember it and uh, we were in good form the journalists were in good form everything was feeling better mm. and i always remember it was a Thursday night i went home to my wife and said look maybe over next few weekends, you know, I'll just take the weekend off and we t- take time out and, you know, we do something. Mm-hmm. And of course, she said to me, are you sure? <laughs> and I said, no, no, we'll do it. Went to bed that night at a, um, about two o'clock in the morning. Um, I got a ca- about half two in the morning, got a call from my ICT director and said, we have a cyber attack and every system in the health service is affected and we're shutting the whole system down. Wow. Uh, so obviously, I supported his decision, um, but it was quite stark. I just wasn't sure whether I was dreaming or mm-hmm. anything. I uh, immediately spoke to the chairman. Uh, we had a discussion with the chairman and others at about six o'clock that morning. Um, I found myself on Morning Ireland just after seven o'clock talking about it and Claire Bourne show at 10 o'clock talking about it. So it was straight intense. It felt probably the biggest body blow that we had suffered throughout the whole of the pandemic because it just felt so unfair yeah, that our health system who were stretched, that our staff who were so stretched, had put in so much, had sacrificed so much to be hit like this. It was just stark. It was the biggest body blow I felt in my career uh, because I felt for staff. Mm-hmm. I immediately went out to the services and seeing the awful s- processes they had to put in place uh, to try keep people safe. If you're taking a bullet test, two decimal points, can mean a f- fatality okay. uh, wrong so you had people uh, checking checking the checker and checking the checker checker so you had three levels of checks we had to put in place we had people running runners literally uh, from one side of the hospital to another where a scam might be taken could only be taken in one place, but has to be brought back to somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was uh, it was quite stark, uh, and in our community system as well, it was it was really stark. You know, your maternity hospitals, your children's hospitals. Uh, you know, I always remember, we, but for the amazing knowledge and work of staff in Children's Hospital in Cromlin. You know, they had some young kids coming through, and they wouldn't have the records for them. They mm-hmm. didn't have the previous history, but they'd have to make an emergency operation. Uh, and but the knowledge of some staff were able to help them through that. You know, so. Quite a stark, it felt, it felt very unfair. You know, Absolutely. the rest of the pandemic you could deal with, you could rationalise, uh, this one just felt irrational Okay, uh, and drove a lot of, you know, actions with Interpol and Guards to that we had to do, but equally in parallel, uh, it took us 16 weeks to get everything back to where it should be. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. One of the things you mentioned that I think on the Rokta's committee meeting, um, I think towards the end of your, your tenure, looking back on, it might have been procurement around ventilators and so on, was you know, we got 70% of the decisions right. I thought that was a very refreshing, honest mm-hmm. remark from a public official insofar as no organization, regardless of sector, can get everything right. Okay, mm-hmm. so we got 70% of the stuff right. Can I ask you two two aspects to this? One, is it something which you'd like to see more of in this kind of you know uh, honesty in a way, and, and public honesty in, in a sense? And equally, maybe there's a second part, which is it does require, doesn't it, maybe a media, society, political system to accept that there is a level, natural level of failure, regardless of organization or sector. Mm. Just be interested in your thoughts on, on what maybe drove the comment and maybe your reflections mm. since.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, as I mentioned, I've worked for 30 years in the private sector. I've never been under any impression or illusion or expectation that I'd get 100% of my decisions right. Mm-hmm. I've reported the boards. Uh, what we generally were interested in the private sector was pace and decision making. Now risk management as well, taking them. So it's something that comes natural to me in my management style in my leadership. I was able to give effect to it actually in Fingal County Council quite a lot where, you know, working with 40 councillors, they had a lot of structures and processes in place, but you know, I used to say, look. We're going we're gonna to do this and we'll get most of it right and we'll learn from what we didn't get right. So coming into the HSC, it's something that was kind of innately uh, lean in my management style. But I did send a message out to our staff, first of all, the very start of the pandemic, that we had to act quick. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to be decisive. Risk assess as best we could our decisions, but go do. And one of the early messages I gave the staff was, we will get 70% right at best, actually. And uh, we get other things wrong, or we do differently. Mm. Uh, but I said to them, We have your backs. And that was an important message to get staff. Act- and was, what I'm really happy about, that get f- got fed back to us quite a lot that people st- felt the mandate to do. Um, we say, Park the spreadsheets, park the PowerPoint, do your risk assessment, and make your decisions. You mm, know? Yeah. So that was, that was where it came from. Do I t- think the first part of your question, um, yes, I think it's something. We have to have a stronger understanding of within the public service when the civil service um because that's the fact and that's the reality mm. uh, and having the process in place to learn when things go wrong uh, but having the process in place to act act decisively and quickly mm. uh, so that's something i do yes from wider public service wider public perspective from the second part of your question it, it will require a, lo- a level of understanding from politicians uh, from everybody um, but actually, interesting, in that time, we used to brief the political parties once a week, uh, the opposition, spokespersons generally and leaders in a room. Uh, and I did say it to them at the very start, I said, always remember when I'm sitting in front of you later on, I'm going to say now we're going to get at best 70% right. So mm-hmm. I think in fairness to them, there's acknowledgement of that at the time. Um, but we all revert to type later on. And uh, yeah, it's an expectation. Uh, why didn't you get it all right? Yeah, It's yeah. never going to happen.
0: Okay. Can I ask you about the the what you've spoken to already and the collaboration of, of different actors in the state. Even within the health service I would have, you know, you were looking mm. in you would have said everyone's rolling up their sleeves and doing what needs to be done. So there was a level of agility, collaboration mm. and it, it happened in lots of organisations during the crisis as well and it struck me kind of looking at it, is this something we can harness into the future or is this something a crisis requires and then everything recedes back into the way it used to be. So maybe from an organisational point of view, a cultural point of view, is there some learnings we can take from um, that that collaboration and for future endeavours and reforming organisations, for example?
1: Yeah, I guess the reality is it happens in every organisation where you galvanise in a crisis uh, and you build a big, strong coalition and you work collaboratively, as you say, you know, so... And equally happens post-crisis that we all revert to type mm-hmm. revert back into our immediate departmental priorities or agency priorities. But I do believe there's a number of structural processes put in place in the civil service over the past few years when I brought a proposal to government around the Civil Service Accountability Board where you mm-hmm. had all the secretaries general coming together uh, once a month and working through kind of collective issues. Uh, so I think that's been very helpful actually in terms of looking at strategic change across all departments but um look the reality is you can't revert to type what you need to build is process in place for uh, cross department collaboration i think i think there's been some good improvements in that but i would bring it back to i think the issue is around pace and decision making you know we we can't hold people over the calls just for you know getting something wrong you know Yes, if you know structures in place, and okay, RT is, a, is, a, is a, an example at the minute that there would seem to be governance collapses. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, you can't go that far, but certainly you, you need to you need to focus on pace. You know, uh, and drive. That's pace. interesting.
0: I was probably in, mm-hmm. in, in in work engagements with, with boards, senior teams when the topic of risk appetite arises. Mm. There's almost an innate response, which is well, we're a public body, public money, low risk appetite. And when you try and tease it out with them, you go, well, actually, this function, absolutely, compliance, uh, budgetary management, perhaps low-risk appetite, but in terms of service delivery, uh, research functions, et cetera, you're probably going to have to do something a bit more than just Mm. low-risk appetite, aren't you?
1: Yeah, and I I wouldn't create the wrong impression. I mean, if you're working in the health system, you're working with uh, patients, you're working Mm. with people who need medical attention, and, you know, what's your risk appetite? there? extremely low. Sure, sure, Uh, But things do happen as well, you know, so... So, yeah, you risk appetite is something we would have spent a lot of time at it with our board about, you know, trying to test that as well and trying to get, I guess, try a clear mandate mm-hmm. where the board uh, says that. So that was a good process in itself, actually, to bring to health system. But, yes, you're right. When you stand across from a public service perspective, the immediate response is, sure, we're going to be hauled out. You want to be in a rock committee. We're going to be very public on this. So we risk appetite low. Then your capacity to drive change quick, your capacity to decision make quick, you know, can be restricted. But look, I think all across the departments are some great examples uh, of driving pace, of driving energy. I mean, I'm always impressed by revenues, uh, revenue and Department of Social Protection, you know, big operators um, and make decisions quickly and did during the pandemic to post, you know, around government policy and execute new systems or new policy changes. So, so we have some great uh, exemplars.
0: Okay, yeah. The, uh, prior to the HSE, you were with uh, Fingal County Council as Chief Executive and also then with uh, the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, two different organisations in of themselves and very different to the HSE as well. Was there any particular experiences or learnings you took from those previous roles or, or others and, and brought with you into the HSE?
1: Yeah, I, I always remember, if you contrast to the two c- kinds of organisations, so Civil Service Deeper and Fingal County Council, which is the mm-hmm. local government, uh, my period in the civil service I was nothing but impressed by uh, the staff's capacity to put together policy for government uh, policy for the minister advise the minister present scenarios present options uh, giving, giving the minister good advice um, mm-hmm. and I was really impressed because it, it's not something I could do my time at Deeper was focused on change management but you know you could lock me in a room for a month and I couldn't be able to write a policy as good as these people were so I was always impressed with capacity to do policy but the weakness was in the execution you know I just we we didn't I don't believe we always think through policy to execution mm. you know it's like a it's like a you know a handoff as opposed to a handover. you know there should be an understanding of when it comes to execution for whatever agency it is or body it is that there's an understanding of it and we thought through the execution in designing the policy so I, I felt that was a gap by contrast when you got to like Fingal County Council they were operators they were doers they were out of the traps doing things you know very quickly maybe didn't always just stand back and think of options or scenarios that we might think through or better ways of doing it, et cetera. So no, no here's the way you are, we're gone. <laughs> you know, so if you could gel the two of that together, uh, you'd have the great process. But yeah, that was the kind of key difference I found. Um, maybe not thinking fabulous policy makers, advisors, ministers, maybe not thinking through execution. And by contrast, real executors sometimes need to just take a step back and see what other options are available to us? You know? Okay, that's interesting. Mm. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and reflecting back on, on those and other experiences, and given this is a governance uh, podcast, maybe one or two or three reflections you have on how we do governance well in the public service, and indeed any other any improvements or modifications you think are mm. worth considering?
1: Well, I do think the fact that we respect and quite rightly should respect that we have a democracy and the people elect the policymakers. People elect government, they rocked us, and local government, councillors. Uh, and I think that's something we should never forget, because they are elected, we, we as civil or public servants aren't, and they have a mandate from the public. So I think that's something that we always need to be very conscious, and protect, and fully respect. That's something I would have brought through very strongly and deeper in Fingal. Uh, and in the health service you know that we we have to take our lead from the policy makers it doesn't mean we don't do go do and go execute and all that but that's one thing that you must always respect I've worked in countries that did some work over the years you reference that start in with Troika and developing countries and you know you see what a non-functioning democracy or a non-democracy is like uh, for all for people who live there and it's not pleasant so we should always respect what we have would be the first thing the second part just in terms of governance um, I, I do think just briefly earlier on what I said about across government that civil service uh, accountability board. I think it's still called that, but that mm-hmm. was that was good initiative to drive collective decision making mm-hmm. and collective ownership. And you know, secretaries general owning a process that may be outside their department or change management. I think that was really good. Two things I'd say we could do better. Uh, one would be the accountability framework. I mean, I was struck in deeper. Every reference is made, not just in Deeper to all departments, of the accounting officer. Counting mm-hmm. officer, mm-hmm. secretary general, accounting officer, counting officer. But it's an executive team, it's a senior leadership team. And I think that gets missed. Mm-hmm. And the risk in that is, you know, I'm on an executive team, which ultimately is the accounting officer will take the rap, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to change that. I think there needs to be a, a stronger accountability framework for all of the leadership teams in all of the departments to feel that accountability mm-hmm. yeah i'm not saying to shy away from it all of them but it can be a scenario where well sure who's going to take the rap you know it's not going to be me it's going to be the accounting officer mm-hmm. so the accounting officer is a technical term and a very understandable technical term why it's there but it shouldn't lead to just only one peop- one person here mm-hmm. you know so i think that's something we can strengthen a lot and then finally i would think you know more visibility of senior public servants um, not crossing the line into policy makers or politicians um, but I, I do believe we should, uh, senior public servants, secretaries general certainly visible at the rock committees but outside of that process yeah, to yeah. be communicating uh, it happens regularly in conferences but if something goes wrong you know being out there as well and explaining it because uh, I think sometimes the public will value it from a public servant as well as maybe just uh, politicians so not everybody will agree with me on that one politicians probably won't maybe senior public servants won't but it's something I believe strongly in
0: okay yeah Can I maybe finish up, uh, Paul, and i very much appreciate your time, the the Citizens' Assembly on on drug use. And I know you met, I think, last weekend, but how you you found that process, it is part of our deliberative democracy now as well, and it's been quite effective in a number of areas, but how you found that experience and the the contribution of of the citizens involved?
1: Yeah, so we're four meetings through a total of six uh, Assembly meetings on drugs, which is a complex issue Mm, in itself. mm. But I've been nothing but impressed by the process, how people are selected how people come, the 100 members come forward. Well, I'm one, the 99 members and myself come forward. The amount of work they put in, not just at the assembly meetings, which happen once a month on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, but the work they put in in advance of them, uh, the preparation, the reading material they do, and the knowledge and information they bring to the debate is just quite inspiring. So yeah, I go home from every assembly meeting just nothing but inspired, I said at the weekend. Um, Their capacity to grasp a complex issue is phenomenal. And it is, we are internationally a gold standard in terms of deliberative democracy. At our last assembly meeting, we had delegation from Australia, delegation from Colombia, and from the UK, all wanting to know and really interested in the whole process and wanting to see how they can use it uh, in, in their jurisdiction. So it's a fascinating process amazing commitment by the people and i feel nothing but privileged to be you know chairing it uh, to be frank and all of the state agencies and bodies and voluntary sector and people with lived experience coming through and, and talking and sharing their experience in fact the lived experience um process has been quite grounding i think for all of us at the assembly just to hear um, how people can some of the reasons why people get into drugs and and, and it's generally you know, I'll, I'll leave it as generally for two, a couple of, couple of distinguishing factors so far. Number one, uh, people have suffered early life trauma on mm. many occasions where it's physical abuse, mental abuse, psychological abuse, you know, family neglect, and then get into drugs to numb that effect mm. and then become addicted and then get into a criminal system and then their life is just in an awful vicious uh, circle. So, I mean, that's, that's one of the learnings come true for us. But secondly, you know, the p- people who have come through. In sharing their stories it's been unbelievable the, the amount they've shared with us and helped us understand it a lot better
0: okay on that note paul thank you very much for your time and contribution to the podcast thanks to everyone who listened in today and you can find more information on the governance forum at governance.ie